Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Happy New Year. It's 2018. It's good to be here. This week we're continuing our series in the Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, last week we talked about the Gospel of the Kingdom. We talked about the good news of the Kingdom. And we established that the Kingdom, the concept of the Kingdom, represents God's reign. And that the arrival of God's Kingdom means victory over our enemies and freedom from slavery. It means victory over Satan, sin and death. And it means that Jesus is restoring our ability to rule over those things that once enslaved us, to rule over our own desires for the glory of God. The kingdom is not just some abstract concept. It is real news and is a real solution for our brokenness and sin. And this week, having established these things, we are prepared to listen to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you might remember last week that I said that the kingdom forms the very core of Jesus' teaching. Well, this statement applies to the Sermon on the Mount as well. We need to understand this this sermon in light of the good news of the kingdom's arrival. In fact, the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus announces that only a few verses before Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. So understanding the kingdom's fundamental role in the sermon helps us to avoid certain errors. For example, this is not as some scholars have said, simply a list of rules that we can't possibly obey that point us to our need for Jesus. So in other words, it's not simply here just to make us guilty and to run to Jesus. No, these are the ethics of the kingdom. The whole teaching shows us what life looks like under God's rule. The final hope of God's kingdom on earth impacts on the present moment. The final hope, God's new order, has already broken into our world and time, will we respond to it? Will we start to live in light of it? Michael Bird, he says, he's a prolific scholar, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom. It is the ethical vision for God's people if they are to live out the covenantal righteousness that comes from experiencing the kingdom-saving power. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for his church today. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what it looks like to be an expression of God's perfect future. The Sermon on the Mount is saturated with grace. Leon Morris says, Matthew 5-7 offers not so much ethics of obedience as ethics of grace. We miss the point if we see the Sermon on the Mount as nothing other than a series of far-reaching demands. The demands are there, certainly, but the love and the mercy of God are there too. The arrival of the kingdom that we talked about last week is sheer grace. The beautiful thing about it is that through it, we discover God's power to change and restore us. Like I just mentioned, the arrival of the kingdom means the defeat of our enemies and it means the restoration of our image. That is our ability to rule. With this ability, we now have the freedom to say no to sin and say yes to Jesus, to say no to the kingdom of darkness and say yes to the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, Jesus doesn't come along to a broken world and say, here's my demands, do them. Jesus brings with him the saving power of the kingdom. He sets us free, he forgives us, and then shows us what it looks like to be part of God's new order, what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. 
So with all this being said, let's dive into the sermon itself. Matthew chapter 5 is, chapter 5 to 7 has the sermon, but we're going to start at Matthew 5 verse 17. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew 5 verse 17. And that's where we're going to begin. And it says, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus declares that he stands in harmony with the Old Testament here. Now why do I say the Old Testament? Well, when Jesus says, the law or the prophets, that is a shorthand way, a Jewish way of referring to the Old Testament. That's why the English Standard Version I've got on the screen has the L capitalised in law. It's not referring to a law, a command, it's referring to the law, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus declares that he stands in harmony with the Old Testament tradition. And this is Craig Blomberg, he explains it a little better. He says, Now Christ makes clear that he is not contradicting the law, but neither is he preserving it unchanged. He comes to fulfill it. That is, he will bring it to its intended goal. Jesus, through his life and ministry, shows us what Israel was meant to truly look like. He reveals to his disciples a way that was so different to the life and the teaching of the religious leaders of Israel at that time. So he goes on to say more about the law in verses 19 to 20. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are some difficult words. And Leon Morris doesn't help us either because he says, the Pharisees were almost universally praised in Jesus' day and, regard, and were regarded as outstanding examples of people who lived by the law of God. Jesus warns us here is that the Pharisaic way is the wrong way. If they had to enter the kingdom of God, they must come by a different way. Now the Pharisees looked really impressive to most Jewish people. So Jesus' hearers might have been shocked to hear him say that their righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, their religious teachers. That they needed to come by a different way if they were to enter by the kingdom of heaven. But let's look at what Jesus thinks of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now the Pharisees, Jesus says, are full of lawlessness. That would have been a stinging rebuke to the meticulous law keepers. Even though they might have sought to adhere to regulations, they missed the heart behind the law. We are meant to pursue God's ethical vision. We are meant to pursue him from the heart. And this is why when a Pharisee later asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus required a righteousness that exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees. He revealed a way of living to us that was far more radical than the Pharisees and yet far more in tune 
with the teaching of the Old Testament. He promoted a righteousness of the heart. Now let's look at the kind of righteousness that our king says belongs to his kingdom. Verses 21 to 48, Jesus talks about this. Each small section starts with Jesus saying something like, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, the teachers have said this, or this is what it says in the Old Testament, but here's what what it means. This is what I say to you. This is what surpassing righteousness looks like. So he repeats these phrases over and over again to show us what righteousness looks like in his kingdom. And the first thing he deals with is anger. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus basically says here, you may have thought you should simply avoid murder, but I tell you that you should not even be angry at another person. You should pursue reconciliation at all costs. So Jesus here doesn't contradict the Old Testament, but fulfills it. He reveals its intended meaning. Here's how Tom Wright explains it. He says, it begins with smouldering anger against someone very close to you. All right, it may not result in murder, but the point of the commandment against murder was not that you should stop short of killing someone, but that you should never get near even the thought that you wish they were dead. This teaching goes straight to the heart. You can avoid dealing with anger in your heart and manage not to murder someone else. But when we take what Jesus is saying here seriously, there is no escape for us. We must deal with the anger in our hearts. And what is even more striking is the fact that reconciliation seems to take place over worship in Jesus' words. He paints a picture of someone taking a gift, taking a sacrifice to the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this was about a three-day journey from the place where his hearers lived, where his audience lived. And so Jesus says, when this worshipper gets all the way into the temple courtyard, they suddenly remember they have something against their brother. So they leave their sacrifice lying there and take a three-day journey back to go and reconcile with this person. And by the time they returned to the temple, their gift would have been lying there for almost a week. So Jesus uses this exaggerated scenario to show how important reconciliation is among his people. He places it over worship in this illustration. And I love the question that Craig Blomberg asks while commenting on this verse. He says, How many of our churches would or should be temporarily emptied if these commands were taken seriously? How many of our churches would or should be temporarily emptied if if these commands were taken seriously? Wow. I wonder how full we would be this morning if if we were all living by Jesus' teaching. Are you angry? Be reconciled. Make friends, not enemies. Next, Jesus gives us his, his infallible interpretation of the command against adultery. He says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Man, another confronting statement. We must take Jesus' commands very seriously because he is not just another rabbi giving his subjective interpretation of the law. He is the God who gave the law and he is telling us what it means and how to fulfill it. But the fact that we are meant to take Jesus' commands seriously doesn't mean that we are meant to take them simplistically. One of the fathers of the early church, Origen, reportedly took this command so seriously that he castrated himself. Now, his obedience is praiseworthy. I'm just not sure whether his application was correct. Jesus uses exaggerated and figurative language to get his points across. Think about it. It's still more than possible to lust with your hand cut off. Cutting one's hand off is not the point. The point is that we are to take drastic action against lust in our lives, against sin in our lives. When we lust over someone else, we dehumanize them. They become objects for our satisfaction. They are no longer someone for whom Christ died, but an object for our consumption. That is so opposed to the values of King Jesus. He didn't come to take from us. He didn't come to consume. He came to serve and to love. And when he saw the woman caught in adultery, he didn't look at her with lust, but with love and sought to set her free from her sin. There is no room for lust in God's new community. Jesus continues on to a related point. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus again gives us his standard. And one Jewish teacher at the time called Hillel permitted a man to divorce his wife for any good reason, which could be as minor an issue as frequently burning his food. And so now the point here is not when can I get a divorce, but rather not to divorce at all. Fidelity and marital faithfulness are part of God's new order. Jesus is giving the mandate here in this sermon for an order and a community that the world has never seen before. Who could ignore a community like this? As we begin to embody the radical vision of Jesus, we will be like a city shining on a hill, revealing to the world the narrow way of Jesus is the way that they long for, the way that leads to life. Do not be ashamed, embrace God's rule and pursue the righteous vision of your king. Jesus goes on, he says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The great king speaking, by the way. And he says, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus paints a very different picture to what the Pharisees were teaching. Look at what the Pharisees were teaching in Matthew 23. It says, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. 
For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? The Pharisees constipated themselves over little details, articulating what kind of oaths were binding and which weren't, missing the point entirely. It wasn't the type of oath that was the problem. It was the deceitfulness inside the hearts of those breaking the oath. They needed new hearts. They needed to obey these laws from the heart as an act of love to God. King Jesus kept his integrity, kept his word till the end, fulfilling his mission of suffering all the way to the cross. No one had to twist his arm to make him do it. He didn't have to take an oath to force him against his own will. He did it of his own accord. Honesty and integrity belong to God's new order. And God's King, Jesus, has modelled it for us. Jesus continues his ethical teaching and speaks about revenge. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Craig Blomberg, he says this about these verses. Jesus contrasts radically with most others of his day in stressing the need to decisively break the natural chain of evil action and reaction that characterizes human relationships. Break the chain of evil and revenge that characterizes Satan's kingdom. His kingdom is fading away. Jesus has defeated it. You are part of the kingdom of heaven now. It is already here and it is growing until one day his kingdom completely takes over the earth. Break the chain of evil and invite people to join the new order of heaven. These verses need to be read within their historical background to be understood correctly. Here's how people probably would have heard them in Jesus' day. Did someone insult you and give you a backhanded slap? Break the chain of evil. Don't return an insult. Did someone sue you and take your tunic as collateral? Do good even to them. Give them more than what the law requires. Did a Roman soldier legally force you to carry his equipment for you one mile? Do even more than that. Go the extra mile. The basic message of these verses is this. Do not return evil. Even more than that, go the extra mile for those who are against you. We will overcome the kingdom of darkness by going the way Jesus modelled for us. He didn't overcome darkness with darkness. He overcame with the light of love, with the light of self-sacrifice, with the light of mercy, with the light of truth. Do not return evil for evil. We now move to perhaps the most challenging section of Jesus' moral vision. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you a child of God? Are you part of His family? Then act like His family. He is so gracious, so gracious that He gives good things to evil people. The sun rises upon them. The rain falls on their land just like anyone else's. He gave us Jesus to us who are evil. They receive good things just like the rest. How odd it would be for you to give evil to those who are evil when your heavenly Father gives good to them. Do good to your enemies. Do you greet your family or your church with a smile? That's wonderful, but there's nothing radical about that. Most people warmly greet those they like or they belong with. Do you want to be like your heavenly Father? Do you want to align yourself with his heavenly rule? Then greet those you don't like. Warmly welcome those who disagree with you. Love those who are a part of a different political party, part of a different religion, a different culture, who have different skin. Invite your Muslim neighbour over for dinner. Pray for the person who persecutes you for no reason. Love them. Break the cycle of hate that characterises the kingdom of darkness. Love the outsider, the other, even your enemy. All of what Jesus has just taught us, this is what kingdom righteousness looks like. Far from being a huge burden or a bunch of abstract principles for us to obey, Jesus in his teaching paints a beautiful vision of God's new community. We must, we must remember that the context of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. We must not separate this teaching from the one teaching it. Jesus sees himself as the promised king, as the one who fulfills this ethical vision, who lives it out and eventually dies in our place on a Roman cross, conquering Satan, sin and death, rising again as the first fruits of the new creation. Jesus established God's kingdom God's new order on earth and we are invited to be the recipients of the blessings of the kingdom. His people are given the spirit that was promised for this new age. Look at these promises that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival in human history. In Ezekiel 36, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. He has done this. This isn't about pulling ourselves up by our ethical bootstraps. God promises that he will cause us to walk by his statues and obey his rules. He promises that he would give his people his spirit. And guess what? Acts chapter 2 records that the coming of the new age, the spirit was poured out on his people. The power that we need to fulfill Jesus' vision is in him. We must abide in him. Walk with him, pray to him that he will help us to fulfill his vision for his church, for BPCC. 
And this is how Scott McKnight puts it. He says, Only in association or relationship with Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount make sense. Jesus does not offer abstract principles or simply his version of the Torah, the law, for a new society. Time and time again, the sermon draws attention to Jesus as the revealer, as the one who opens up to his followers a new way of life. His moral teachings then result in an offer of himself to his disciples. Or put differently, he summons them to himself and in participation with him and his vision, the disciples are transformed into the fullness of a kingdom moral vision. Jesus is inviting us today through his word to come under his rule, to enter into the kingdom he has established and to look to him, the one who fulfilled it all, to enable and empower us to live out his moral vision so that we can pursue the perfection of the Father, so that we can, as we've just looked at, reconcile with one another, so that we can take sin seriously so that we can take marriage seriously, so that we can keep our integrity and word, so that we can return good for evil and go the extra mile for others, so that we can love others who are at odds with us, even our enemies. Now, like we just said, this is a beautiful moral vision, but we need Jesus if we are going to be able to fulfill it. So let's seek him together in prayer now and ask that he would excite us with his vision for our church, that he would give us the faith to believe in his promises and that he would shape and form us into people of the kingdom. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you for your righteous rule. Thank you that you came, that you established the kingdom of heaven on earth that it is here, it is amongst us. Thank you for your presence with us this morning, Holy Spirit. Lord, we're just before you as your people right now. And we need you. We want to love you, we want to worship you, we want to obey you as you have told us to. Lord, these aren't just teachings that are meant to make us guilty. These are teachings that should make us excited. You are doing this in our community, in the church, until one day the kingdom of heaven fully comes. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for showing us what the kingdom life looks like. Lord, help us. Help us to reconcile. Help us to invest in our marriages. Lord, help us to walk in purity, to love you. We thank you for what you have done and we ask, Lord, pour out your spirit upon us. Help us to walk as your people. We want to be a city on a hill, shining your light to all those who don't know you. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.